6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 24 and 25. Now Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. You know how tragic it is. All three of these sons of Josiah haven't learned anything from their dad. They're bad news. They're, 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 they're just, they're offending the very God that's put him there for, for, uh, for judgment, if you will. And, uh, Jehoiachin will only reign about three months, apparently. Zedekiah will, uh, you see, Jehoiakim was mentioned probably because he reigned 11 years, where Zedekiah's immediate successor lived only three months. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah until he had cast them out from his presence that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now you're missing a lot of drama here. If we were going through the book of Jeremiah, we'd get a lot more detail here. Basically, the same pattern though. The king gets listens to the false prophets, rebels against the king of Babylon, which is not only going against a superior force, it's going against God's purpose in having them captivity in the first place. That's what Jeremiah is trying to get across to them. But they just regard him as a traitor and, and keep at it. So, uh, so uh, that finishes verse chapter 24. Let's go to 25, the final siege. We're going to get to the third and final siege of Nebuchadnezzar. came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, the tenth month, the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came, he and all his host, against Jerusalem and pitched against it, and they built forts against it round about. And the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. You know, a siege, we glibly read about these things, but we have no capacity to imagine what it was like. Sealing off a city... Um, and uh, not letting anybody go in or out. And they quickly dried up their food, and they pretty soon the women were eating their babies. It was uh, it's, it's, it's unimaginable, unimaginable uh, famine and so forth. And the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city roundabout, and the king went the way toward the plain. And the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army were scattered from him. And they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. That's where he apparently had his headquarter, you know, his, his uh, uh, headquarter camp. And they gave judgment upon him. And I want you to notice verse 7. There's Zedekiah. He's trying to flee, but they got him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. Why am I making a point of this? Well, because if we read the writings of Ezekiel, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk a lot about Zedekiah, trying to tell him, don't do what you're trying to do. Big mistake. And uh, 
Jeremiah said, you're going to die there. You'll die in Babylon. And Ezekiel said in verse 13 of chapter 12 of Ezekiel, he says, My net will I also spread upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. And uh, Zedekiah made fun of the two of you. You two prophets can't get your act together. One guy says, I won't see Babylon. The other guy says, I'm going to die there. Guess what? Both are true. He shall not see it, though he shall die there. What did they do when they caught him? First thing they did is they had him changed. They took his sons and slaughtered them before his eyes. So there'd be no progeny. Huh? Then they blinded him. So he'd be, you know, so he couldn't escape and so forth. And took him to Babylon. That's where he died. You know, when you read prophecies like this, it's really sobering because you realize that God means what he says and says what he means. I, every, to every place in the scripture where I see prophecy fulfilled, it's literal. It's precise, not just symbolic. It's very, very precise. Well, moving on. Anyway, 2 Kings 25, verse 8. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which is the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem. And he burnt the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and every great man's house burnt he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. And now the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude did Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carry away. But the captain of the guard left the poor of the land to be wine dressers and husbandmen. And the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord and the bases and the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord did the Chaldees break in pieces and carried the brass of them to Babylon. And the pots and shovels and snuffers and the spoons and all the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered, they took away. And the fire pans and bowls and such things as were of gold, in gold and of silver and in silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, the one sea, the bases which Solomon made for the house of the Lord, the brass of all these vessels was without weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits and the chapter upon it was brass and the height of the chapter was three cubits and the Breathing work and the pomegranates upon the chapter round about all of brass and the like under these the second pillar with wreathen work. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door. And out of the city he took an officer that was set over the men of war and five men of them that were in the king's presence, which were found in the city, and the principal scribe of the host, which mustered the people of the land, and threescore men of the people of the land that were found in the city, and Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon, to Riblah. And the king of Babylon smote them, slew them in Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was carried away out of the land. And as for the people that remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had left, even over them he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, the ruler. So he's appointing. Now, why would he appoint Gedaliah? Well, one of the reasons, if you do your homework in Jeremiah, Gedaliah was very friendly with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's whole position was pro-Nebuchadnezzar. Even though he's the conqueror, Jeremiah's whole preachment was, Nebuchadnezzar's doing God's will. We should yield to that. Gedaliah was a friend of Jeremiah, so here Nebuchadnezzar, knowing that, he's looking for a governor to take care of the poor that he's left behind. He appoints Gedaliah a governor because he's going to be pro-Babylonian. You follow me? When all the captains of the armies uh, they, and their men uh, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah the governor, 
There came to Gedaliah, to Mitzpah, even Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Yohanan, the son of Kariah, and Syria, the son of Tanhumath, the Netophathite, and Jezaniah, the son of the Machathite, they and their men. And I don't think you need to know those names, so I didn't pronounce them properly anyway, so let's move on. And Gedaliah swore to them and to their men and said to them, Fear not to be the servants of the Chaldees, dwell in the land, and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the seed royal, that's interesting, came and ten men with him and smote Gedaliah, that he died, and the Jews and the Chaldees that were with him in Mitzvah. See, Ishmael was of the royal family. Gedaliah was not. He was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. So Ishmael had the audacity to assume that he should be ruling because he's, he's of the royal line. He's of the house of David. And all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the armies rose and came to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldees. And it came to pass in the seventh and thirtieth year of captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, in the twelfth month on the seventh, seventh and twentieth day of the month, that Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, out of prison. Jehoiachin sees in prison, but, but he's got a new, new king is now in charge, and so he takes him out of, he lifts him out of prison. It's kind of interesting that, uh, it ends there, um, on a positive note. And he spake kindly to him, and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiachin was treated with greater respect, obviously, um, by the succeeding king than the other conquered kings that were in Babylon. And this may be because Jehoiachin repented before the Lord, but uh, that change of heart isn't recorded in the text. That's just a speculation. Anyway, he changed his prison garments, did eat bread continually before him in all the days of his life, and his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king a daily rate for every day all the days of his life. So he's in, in a min- minimum security situation here that the, the new king, Evil Merodach's name, uh, provided for him. And so it, it seems as if the writer here is trying to end on a positive note. And uh, it's, it, the reason that you talk about this is that it, it's, it's, it's a very, very grim time for the house of Judah going into captivity. They're going to be in captivity for 70 years until the Persians conquer Babylon. And Cyrus the Persian uh, then uh, uh, not only allows, he in fact encourages the uh, Babel, the uh, Jews to go back home and rebuild their temple. Only less than 50,000 take advantage of that. He even gives them incentives to go and he makes donations to the temple. Cyrus, the whole story of Cyrus is a terrific thing. But uh, I'd like to, uh, uh, since we've got a little time, give you some other aspects to this. There's something else that you should know about Jeconiah, this guy called Jehoiachin, or sometimes called Kaniah. In Jeremiah chapter 22, Jeremiah is quite articulate about all the problems with these bad guys. The guys after Josiah are all bad news. But by the time you get to Jeconiah, the Lord has had it. They're going to captivity, but I want you to notice in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, there's a verse that you want to note. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. You say, okay, well, what, what's that got to do with anything? There's a problem. Do you see the problem? You see, I have in my imagination, I, whenever I see this, I always imagine Satan and his counsels 
throwing a party. Because he must have, Satan must have been convinced that God had shot himself in the foot, as we might say. God has committed himself that the Messiah will come from the royal line of David. Here is the last of the royal line, and he, God here pronounces a blood curse on the descendants of Jeconiah. And I can almost visualize Satan rubbing his hands. Boy, I got him this time. Because how can he have a blood curse on the royal line from which the Messiah is to come? You see the problem? Now, as I imagine that in, my, in the fantasy of my own imagination, I also always visualize God turning to the angels saying, watch this one. Because we get this all unraveled when we get to the Gospels. You may recall that the book of Matthew, the first Gospel, goes through a genealogy. Matthew is Jewish, and like any good Jew, he would start with Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, and right on through to the house of David. Very straightforward. I'll get back to David in a minute. When you get to the Gospel of Luke, Luke was a Gentile. He was a physician. He wasn't Jewish in his outlook. He was a Gentile in his outlook. So Luke starts with Adam, first man. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And then he goes on, Shem, Arphax, right on through to Terah, the father. And when you get to Abraham, Luke's genealogy from Abraham to David is obviously the same as Matthew's. So far, so good. No problem so far. Luke just starts earlier. You follow me? In effect. Well, you get to the house of David. Let's take an examine. When you get to David, something strange happens. Matthew continues through Solomon, the royal line, Rehoboam, Abijah, through all these kings that we looked at in the uh, uh, southern kingdom, right down to, to Jehoiakim, right? From Jehoiakim, we go to Jehoiachin and a whole bunch of others, upon whom is the blood curse, right? But when you get down there, it ends in Joseph, who is the legal father of Jesus, but not his natural father. So the legal line is there represented, even though he's not a blood relative. I'll explain how that works in a minute. Luke, he doesn't go through Solomon. Luke takes it through the second servant. Solomon was the first surviving son of Bathsheba, Nathan was the second servant, not the, Nathan the prophet, the son of David. Nathan, the second surviving son of Bathsheba, down through a whole string that finally comes down to Heli, who is the father of Mary. Now you say, Chuck, how do we know that? Because it says Heli, it speaks of Joseph. Well, because you have to look at the Greek carefully. Uh, let's back up a little bit and tell, explain something else to you. Back in the Torah, there is a strange exception recorded in the Torah. There, in the Torah, there are rules of inheritance. Inheritance always took through, went through the male line, you may recall. It's always the firstborn son, etc., you know, the rules. But there, there's a guy by the name of Zelophehad who has five daughters, no sons. And he comes to Moses and says, what am I going to do? I've got only daughters. How will my inheritance work? Moses does the right thing. He doesn't judge it. He goes to the Lord and asks for guidance. And the Lord says, make an exception. So he does. It's recorded in Numbers 27. When you get 40 years later, you know, when they're in the, when Moses passed away, Joshua takes, they go into the land. By then, these four, five daughters of Zelophehad come to Joshua. They're getting ready. They've succeeded the seven year campaign. They've conquered the land. They're dividing up the land. And, and the, the daughters of Zelophehad say, uh, uh, hey, we got an exception. We're all daughters. 
and Joshua checks the Torah, the words of Moses. In Joshua 17, he says, you know, you're right. And they inherit by the exception that's in the Torah. What's really fascinating is if you look at, I've looked at dozens of commentaries, and where they talk about the Dodge of Zelophehad, this whole, this, this little incident that's in the Torah. And it's amazing to me that they don't get it. Most kind of people say, well, this is just a tribal exception as part of the ancient practice. You know, they have all these cultural comments, but they don't, know what, they don't understand what's going on here. It was C.I. Schofield, not in his Bible, but in some other writings he did. He was, to the best of my awareness, the first guy to recognize that the claims of Christ hang on this exception. Why? I'll explain. When the, 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 the rules, the exception was that if there's only daughters, that the, the husband would be adopted by the father of the bride as a son and thus inherit the inheritance of the, of, of the father of the bride. Do you follow me? The husband was adopted. And, and uh, many people know the rule, but they don't understand that there's actual adoption procedure. In Ezra 2, Nehemiah 7, this occurs in Numbers 32, also in First Chronicles 2, and, and so forth. So you'll find the scripture. Now the point is, this anticipates the lineage of Christ Joseph in Luke 3, verse 23, is not the son of Heli, he is the son-in-law of Heli. The word in the Greek is nobizo, which means reckoned as by law. So the, 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 uh, the Joseph in Matthew's genealogy is his bloodline, but he, uh, but, uh, he doesn't carry the, because he's not the father of Christ in the blood sense, so he doesn't carry the curse, the blood curse of Jeconiah. The, uh, in Luke's genealogy, jo- it says that Joseph is the son of Heli. It's actually the son-in-law of Heli. You've got Mary's genealogy in Luke. And it's amazing to me how many commentaries and, and dictionaries and stuff don't recognize that. Or if they recognize, only do it partially. They say, well, maybe that's a possibility. They haven't done, they haven't finished their homework. So that's what's kind of interesting. So that's why we have virgin birth. It's first hinted at in the Garden of Eden. When God declares war on Satan, he says it's going to involve the seed of the woman. That's a contradiction in biology, let alone in grammar. The seed is the man, not the woman. The seed of the woman. It's a hint of the virgin birth. And of course, we we spoke about Ahaz, how God offered him a sign. He wouldn't take a sign. In Isaiah 7, we talked about that uh, a few sessions ago. And God says, okay, if you won't take a sign, I'll give a sign to the house of of, uh, Judah. A virgin shall conceive and so forth. Isaiah 7.14. Some people say, well, the Hebrew word there doesn't necessarily mean virgin. When the Hebrews translate into Greek, they use parthenogenesis, which is clearly a virgin. So in any case, there's no, there's no competent debate about that issue. All of this is an end run, if you will, on the blood curse on the royal line in Jeremiah 22.30. The, the blood curse that was pronounced in Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, or Kaniah, if you will. So I think that's kind of a fun thing. Because it just when you when you go into this, these things, it's just fascinating to me to see the detailed tapestry that's been woven here. How God's plan takes every crossing of the T, every dotting of the I is is part of His plan, and He seems to go out of His way, you know, to do things colorfully. And uh, God has, I think, he must, I, I I I I really do believe He has a sense of humor. This is a this is great stuff. Another question that comes up, they are in the land for... The, the, the northern kingdom was wiped out permanently by the Assyrians. But the southern kingdom went, went into captivity for a definitive period of time, for 70 years. Why 70 years? Well, 
In 2 Chronicles 36, it explains why. In 2 Chronicles 36, starting verse 19, it says, And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burn all the palaces there with fire, destroyed all the goodly vessels. This is the parallel passage that we just read. And then that escaped from the sword, carried he away to Babylon. They were the servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. What this implies is that for 490 years, they had not kept the Sabbath. So God says, you owe me 70. And so they're going into captivity to rest, if I can put that in quotes, the years that they owed God. He keeps score, doesn't he? It's, it's, there's there's a there's a, a very interesting uh, parallel um, uh, on the uh, this is the, there are 490 year periods all through history, Israel's history, and in each reckoning there are longer periods calendar wise, but you subtract the years they're out of fellowship, and you always end up with 490. It's very interesting. But anyway, uh, this tells us why it's 70 years. But it's interesting that when we get to Daniel, Daniel's a captive in, in, in uh, Babylon. He knows that they have been um, uh, in there for... He, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, actually. Daniel, in Daniel 9, is reading Jeremiah 25. In, I'll, get, I'll come to Daniel 9 in a minute. Daniel, in, in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, 12, he says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it a perpetual desolation. Now Daniel's reading the Bible. He's reading Daniel's word. When you open the Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says this, in the first year of Darius, the son of... Now this is... By the time you get to here, the Babylonians have been conquered by the Persians. But strangely enough, Daniel even rises to power... In the Persian, that's a fascinating fact. The whole life of Daniel is fascinating. But in any case, he is under Darius, the son of Azarias, of, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications, with fasting and sacrifice. And then he goes into prayer for about 20 verses of prayer. Now, first point is kind of interesting. You notice Daniel is reading Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says it's going to be 70 years. I suspect that Daniel, is, by the time he's reading this, about 60-some-odd years have gone by. He's an old man, not a young kid. He was transported as a kid, but he's now in, in his elder, later years. He's reading Jeremiah. Oh, it's only going to last 70 years. So he knows the captivity is about over. He doesn't put his feet on the desk and say, Boy, I can hardly wait, you know. I'm a pre-trib rapture kind of guy. It's coming soon, you know. I'm being facetious. Um, what does he do about the fact that it looks like the captivity is about over? What is he? He prays. You betcha. And from verse 3 on to verse about 20, some odd, 20, 21, he is praying for God's will to be done. That may throw us a little bit. You know, we sort of give God our wish list. Hey, God, by the way, I'd like you to do this and that and this for me and be sure to watch over and whatever. No, that's not prayer. 
Well, you can petition. There's a place for that. But that's not prayer. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what He wants to do. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Why do you have to pray for His kingdom come? Of course it's coming. No, He wants you to pray for it. That's His way of involving you, getting you involved in what He's doing. Here's Daniel. He knows that captivity is about over. So what does he do? He prays for his people. He, his prayer, and I'm sorry I don't have the time to get into detail, his prayer is so intense that even in the English translation, you can feel him tremble. And by the time you get through in those verses, you'll f- feel the verbs pick up their speed. You can almost feel him get excited. And it's the interrupted prayer in the Old Testament. Because about verse 21, he's in the middle of his prayer, he's praying away, and who, guess who shows up? Gabriel. Whenever Gabriel shows up, he's always on a mission of announcing something about the Messiah. Old or New Testament, he's always announcing. He's, a, he's, the, he's the advanced man. He's the PR man. Gabriel says, Daniel, because you're greatly beloved, i got a special verse, uh, prophecy for you. And the last four verses of Daniel 9, in my opinion, are the most important verses for you to master in the Old Testament. If you're serious about prophecy... You need to really master the last four verses of Daniel 9. Gabriel gives Daniel a four-verse prophecy that is unquestionably, to me, the most astonishing passage in the entire Scripture. Because it predicts the exact day that Jesus will present himself as a Messiah. The exact day. And you can prove it. If you go through the trouble, I'm, I'm, I'm going to spare you that tonight, but I encourage you to do your homework. Uh, we've got obviously got a commentary on Daniel. We've got, uh, we've got special briefings called Daniel 70 Weeks. You, this, it's the famous 70-week prophecy of Daniel. The first of the four, four verses, Gabriel says to Daniel, 77, 70 Shabuim, 77s are reckoned or determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city. Notice it's on, it's on the Jews, not the church, the Jews. 77s are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to do six things, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision of the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Wow. Now we won't go into the six things, but it's pretty clear those haven't happened yet. Have we made an end of sins? I don't think so. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.